0: This fall, High Theory is participating in the Humanities Podcasting Symposium, organized by the Humanities Podcast Network. If you are a podcaster or avid listener, we invite you to contribute, too. We are looking for presentations on podcasting in the humanities in all shapes and forms, on audiences, teaching, learning, equity, accessibility, knowledge production, and everything else.
2: The symposium will be held entirely virtually on October 15 and 16, 2021. Find details about the Humanities Podcast Network as well as our full call for contributors for the symposium at humanitiespodnetwork.org. That's humanitiespodnetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to today's episode, which is titled Experimental
1: Life. Our guest today is Travis Lau, and Travis, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, My name is Travis Chi-Wing Lau. I am currently an assistant professor of English at Kenyon College. Uh, I work in 18th and 19th century British literature, health, humanities, and disability studies. Uh, And my pronouns are he, him, his.
2: Thank you so much for coming to talk to us.
1: Yes, it's great. I'm so glad that we're getting to chat about... All things experimental and particularly Frankenstein. So, what the heck is experimental life, Travis? That is a very good question. And really the question I began with, uh, with the course that had the same name when I was at UT Austin as a postdoc, I wanted to teach a literature and science course. Um, And I I was really resistant to kind of teaching a course that was sort of an introduction of the history of science from uh, medieval to contemporary. And I just, I felt like it was an opportunity to really think about things that matter to me, one of which was uh, my reservations about CRISPR and gene editing, it had occurred to me that an opportunity here to turn to history to think about these questions about what constitutes life and what the experiments on life were and how those debates get worked out over time such that we're still dealing with them uh, in our contemporary moment.
2: So when you designed the course, did you, to preface these discussions, did you also discuss like a genealogy of the idea of life Some life is something that can be experimented on?
1: Yes. So I essentially the course was designed where I wanted to think about the concept of the homunculus or this kind of proto-life form that then becomes sort of played out through texts like Shelley's Frankenstein or its predecessor, uh, Erasmus Darwin's The Temple of Nature. I'm trying to think about this imagination of life as a kind of animate force and that which can be experimented upon or manipulated, how that gets worked out in Shelley's novel, which is a response to Erasmus Darwin's everyone's thinking, as well as some of the debates at the time over what constituted life or how we even describe something as living and or dead.
2: When we were talking about this episode, uh, I told you that I'm going to also be teaching Frankenstein, which is, you know, I've already done those lectures and we we did talk about, you know, something that I also see in your post description, which is the vitality debates. Yes. And they I think my students were really enthused about this debate that was happening. Uh, between uh, you know people like Lawrence and Abernethy and about this whole idea of life is something is it uh, is it like a very special organization of the parts is it more than the sum of the parts so um could could I ask you to you know before you move on could I ask you to kind of gloss a the idea of the homunculus uh, for our listeners and also maybe a bit about the vitality
1: debates which I think you also kind of talk about I know less about the homunculus tradition beyond sort of its uh, alchemical history and its relationship to a series of kind of mystical traditions, as well as what we might think of as proto-scientific traditions of essentially this notion of a proto-human that in its most essential form is uh, that which can be acted upon to become ultimately what we understand as life. So there was this belief, right, that you could essentially get a, a kind of a preformed human that was the sort of essentialized human form that you could nurture or grow into full life. And it became something that uh, a lot of alchemists and medieval thinkers were interested in trying to control or to experiment with. But by the time we get to the uh, late 18th and early 19th century, uh, we have this anxiety about what actually constitute, constitutes life. And I'm thinking right. precisely with the debate you're, you're, you're referring to between Abernethy and Lawrence, Abernethy was Lawrence's teacher. And Abernethy had this, uh, f- was very committed to trying to reconcile science and religion or spirituality and had always held the belief that life in and of itself was a kind of force that pervaded and permeated the body such that it worked alongside bodily function. So this is often referred to at the time as vitalism, this kind of force of energy that pervaded all things and that if you could control it, you could effectively control life itself or as Shelley's Frankenstein wants to play with, reanimate the dead. Lawrence, on the other hand, was completely uninterested in this and fully believed that the life was reducible to mechanical and physical function.
2: On that note of what life is, or like kind of delving into the nature of life as situated in this historical debate, but also what your course is doing is thinking in those terms about technologies that we are possibly grappling with right now. And we are also looking forward to, I will ask you my next question, which is how do we use experimental life?
1: I think this is perhaps the most one of the most pressing questions. Um, and I was thinking recently about—I believe it was the Nobel Prize that was given to the originators of the CRISPR technology. Right. Um, and it was—I uh, cannot for my life now recall exactly the language they used, but in the in the award description, uh, there was a description of CRISPR as the promise of a new a new future for life itself. Um, And I was really troubled by this because I think as someone working in disability studies, I hear all the ways that CRISPR or experimenting with life itself gets framed in these neo-eugenic ways, that there are futures that are going to be imagined without disability and without illness, which to most people sounds absolutely innocuous or even uh, desirable. But I think I sometimes will put it bluntly to people and, and it can be unsettling to them. But when I say if that were true, I would not be here. I would not exist because essentially I would have been screened out or eliminated in advance of my coming into the world. And that's related to longstanding practices we have in medicine, such as prenatal testing that give parents informed, quote unquote, informed consent of whether or not they want their child to be born or if they want to uh, abort that pregnancy uh, in advance of that child being born with a disability. And I think about, yes, the, what motivates that is this belief that uh, parents need to be, quote unquote, informed. But when they are informed in a way that suggests that, one, disability is uh, undesirable and secondly that there are ways that, that it can be circumvented or even prevented that doesn't seem to me to be informed choice it seems to me to say well the right choice is to make sure that disability doesn't come into the world and CRISPR, CRISPR seems to say well we can do that at the genetic level
2: yeah and also you know that <clears throat> violence is definitely there in the you know when you say gene editing and that violence is there in the word editing itself i think yes so let me ask you a follow-up question, which is how would you place the idea of the life examined or the examined life together with the life experiment or the you know, experimental life?
1: As I as I think through that question, my instinct is to think about how in the model of a life examined, the very notion of life itself is presumed, right? That these are a set of conditions in which you are born into or lived through, um, and that you need to think about your relationship to those conditions or relations that you have with other people and environments. But a life experimented suggests that the very terms of that life could be altered, or the trajectory of that life could changed. And I really want to think about that implication because it can be extremely tantalizing, right? That rather than to accept a set of conditions, we can in fact change them or change the very dynamics of a life itself such that it could be perfected or made better or made ideal. I uh, I think about a lot um, the conversations around what a quote-unquote a good life is. And it's described in very particular ways. And with the rise of something like experimentation on a genetic level, or what we might think of as more advanced technologies that might alter life itself, I wonder if even a conversation about a good life starts to have certain other forms of cultural and social expectations for what per, uh, a life perfected might look like rather than. Just yeah. Good.
2: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And this is again, to go back to Frankenstein, because that seems to be our key text here. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something I think that also uh, concerns Shelley where, uh, you know, the creature is definitely after, after the creature accepts the fact that it is alive, it also kind of, um, you know, it, it strives towards a kind of perfectibility and you have this kind of humanistic education that um, grows through. Yes. How will experimental life save the world?
1: I have anxieties about <laughs> the very notion of experimentability as saving the world, particularly as it is being mobilized by biomedicine so uncritically. Um, not, that's not to say that bioethical work is not happening, but the way that it is described um, especially as we we talked about early, just a moment ago about even the language of editing as suggesting that there are people who can adjudicate what is worth purging or fixing or correcting, who gets to make those decisions, that seems to be something I don't hear enough people, especially in a biotech or in biomedicine, really thinking seriously, especially because so much of science wants to disavow its connection to the cultural and the social. And I I really want to think about, okay, if we're going to say these forms of technology can save the world, I think it can. But my way of maybe... Reframing that question is, who gets to be part of the discussion in terms of what constitutes that saving? What does salvation look like? If salvation means people like myself who identify as disabled no longer exist, that doesn't sound like salvation to me.
2: If you were to kind of give us a mini reading list for thinking about experimental life, or you can just tell us what text you taught, so that's also possible.
1: (laughs) Sure. So I wanted every excuse to teach um, Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go as well as Blade Runner. Uh, both the original film and Blade Runner 2049 because it was something I just watched and I really wanted to think about the persisting tropes of uh, lives that have been experimented upon that then become aware of their exploitation or lives that are experimented upon for the services of others which is essentially the heart of Ishiguro's novel in which there's a series of experimental clones produced to create organs to sustain the life of others. So in many ways I wanted to see if there could be a Narrative genealogy that could be made from Shelley's Frankenstein all the way to something like Never Let Me Go or Blade Runner 2049. Uh, We also looked at the film Ex Machina, which deals with these questions in perhaps disturbing uh, (laughs) with a disturbing literalness and really sort of thinking about you know uh, artificial life forms and whether or not they uh, deserve to be understood as living on their own terms or still even though they can mimic or uh emulate the living are actually still machines. So we we uh we looked at that. We also read Wells's The Island of Doctor Moreau, which is all about again the experimentation on uh essentially beasts to make them into humans and this a notion of uh experimentation and the debates at the time over vivisection or the use of living animals for experimentation, I think it's very telling to me that there was such a turn to the literary as a way of dealing with the more ethical questions that are raised by those scientific practices. The kind
2: of untamable creatures of science always find their ways and appear in literary texts. Thank you so much, Travis. Thank you so much for that that wonderful discussion on experimental life. And you know I this was a great Also, this was a great preface for all of the courses that I want to teach in the future. Thank you
1: so much. No, it was so great. I mean, I could talk about this stuff for for hours because I feel like it's so urgent. And the conversations that I feel like we need to be having just don't get had because people, I think, don't have the vocabulary and Sort of conceptual understanding of these questions. So I think that's, if anything, proof that what we do as, as medical humanists or people in disability studies, we're, this is where our contributions are most valuable.
0: And thank you for listening to High
1: Theory.
2: If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix.
0: Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio.
2: You can also find us at hightheory.net.
0: We hope you have a highly theoretical day.